Yes, we are starting a brand new series today called Moral Mayhem. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to introduce you to a very special guest. Um, I never, ever want us to get so myopic that we think that God is only at work in this building or in this city. We are involved in ministry through partners and organizations and missionaries all over the world. And one of those individuals is with us today. So Rick, would you stand up? Some of you know Rick. Would you welcome Rick to Grace Point back again? He is, uh, he actually came from, did you, did you, are you here from New Zealand? Did you come from New Zealand this time? Okay, so he gets the prize for coming the furthest to church, <laughs> right? But uh, Rick is involved in all kinds of um, unbelievable ministry that we get to partner with him um, throughout uh, the world. So I'd love for you to, um, to, to grab Rick in the lobby after service. Don't physically grab him, but go talk to him um, and, and find out a little bit about what um, our partnering with Rick is doing um, throughout the world. Um, and I bet you if at least 15 or 20, KU will be 3-0 and next week. So I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Sorry, that was dumb. Um, they're not going to be 3-0. and um, So let's jump in uh, to this series. We are, um, for the next six weeks, we're going to go through one of the most odd uh, it's confusing series of narratives in all of ancient literature. Surely, um, some of those odd, just weird series of narratives in the Old Testament. So, I want to say this at the very beginning: um, if we get halfway through the message, or if we get half through through the series, and you're like, "What? I'm a what?" And you could also open your Bible and read this yourself if you'd like which I encourage you to do. But if, if you get to the point where you're like, what is this all about? I'd, I'd encourage you to go to gracepointtopeka.org. You can watch the message again. You can watch all the series there. Um, if your husband isn't here and you think he really needs to hear this message, you can send him that message. If you're wanting to send it to the president of the PTA at your kid's school, because wow, they need this, whatever it is, anybody and everybody, um, we, we want to, 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 for this to be a blessing to people. Um, but this series is, for the majority of the series, we're going to be going through the Old Testament book of Judges. In fact, if you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to follow along. A little bit later, we're going to be in Judges 19, to the end of the book. I'll tell you why here in a second. Um, but this is um, a series of events that takes place in between the time of when Joshua, who is the leader after Moses, between the time that Joshua dies and the time that Israel becomes a monarchy. Um, king Saul is the first um, king of Israel. But that 330 years, Israel, um, they, they're kind of like a commonwealth, kind of like the original 13 colonies of America. There's no central government. They have a central, they have a common ancestry. They have a common language. They have a lot of common things uh, amongst the different 12 tribes, but there's still 12 distinct tribes. But there is no king, okay? There is no king. There is no ruler. There is nobody to kind of uphold God's law. So God sends this, these series of judges to enforce or to reinforce God's law um, over and over and over, and sometimes even to, to rescue them from their enemies. And you say, well, what do they need rescuing from? 
It's a great question. You guys always ask great questions. Why, why would they need rescuing? Well, Israel had a lot of things in common with you. They didn't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do, right? And there was this, this pattern, this cycle over and over and over again where they would, they would figure out, they would disobey God. They would cry out for a deliverer or, or, or for God to help them. And then God would deliver them. And over, they, 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 they disobey God. They would face a disaster. They would ask for a deliverer. They would disobey God. They would face a disaster. They would ask for a deliverer. This happens over and over and over. It's actually one of the most relevant things about the book of Judges because you don't need a preacher to tell you this, but you've disobeyed before, right? You've disobeyed your parents, You've disobeyed a civil law. You've disobeyed a moral law. You've disobeyed a religious law. You disobeyed your coaches. You disobeyed your teachers, whatever it was. And you find yourself in a little bit of a mess. You find yourself, you, there's a, there's a disaster and it could be small, it could be medium, it could be large. And then you find yourself asking for help and perhaps somebody came along. Somebody came along and bailed you out. Somebody came along, gave you a second chance. Somebody came along and took you to rehab. Somebody came along and they helped you. It was a deliverer in your life. And you said something like this, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going back there. And you didn't for about a week, right? For about a month, for about a year. And that, that pattern just started all over again. Well, the, the nation of Israel, like we, our nation, we're only about 250 years old. Like we're baby. We're a baby nation. For 330 years, the nation of Israel goes through this pattern, goes through this cycle over and over and over again. So we're going to start at the end of the book of Judges because it shows just how bad things have become. It shows what happens to a group of people, to a community, yes, to a nation that decides, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and nobody's going to tell me not to. You do what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me. Don't tell me what I say is right is right for me, and I won't tell you what you say is right for you because I think you should just do what you're going to do, I'm going to do what I want to do, and let's just leave it, just mind your business. Israel lived like that for 330 years, and it eventually devolves into this chaotic mess. And that's what we're going to look at throughout this series. But I want to start with the end. And then we'll go back and beginning. So again, the nation is divided into 12 different tribes. And our story um, for today starts with um, a Levite from Ephraim. We don't know his name, but we know he's from the tribe of Levi. And he lives in the hill country of, of Ephraim. And throughout the story, um, we're told of, uh, of his girlfriend. She's called a concubine, but he has this concubine. A concubine is kind of like a girlfriend slash servant slash wife slash fill in the blank. And it was kind of legal, but it kind of wasn't legal. It was, it was actually, they, they took this or they not necessarily stole it, but they adopted this practice 
from the Canaanites, which they weren't supposed to do. We're going to talk about that um, in a few weeks. But this, this Canaanite, uh, the, 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 I mean, this concubine from Bethlehem, okay? And in the story, we're told that the concubine is unfaithful to the Levite. The Levite finds out about it. She finds out that he found out. And so she goes back to Bethlehem to live with her family. And we don't know if he just got over being angry. We don't know if he got lonely, whatever it was, but time passes. And he decides to go down to Bethlehem to get his concubine back. And he has to go through the, this area of the tribe of Benjamin, down to Judea, to Bethlehem. He shows up at her father's house asking for his concubine, his girlfriend, his wife. And her father isn't really excited about this. He doesn't really want her to go back. And, and we're told that he comes up with his plan. He basically gets the Levite drunk. He wakes up the next morning. He's got a migraine, right? He's seeing straight. He's seeing clear about noon. He said, okay, it's time for us to go. And the father-in-law is like, well, it's probably too late in the day for you to leave. Why don't you stay till tomorrow? The same thing happens that night. Gets him drunk, wakes up the next morning with a hangover. About noon, he's seeing straight. Okay, it's time to go. Let's go. Father-in-law, nah, I think it's too late in the day. I think you should stay another day. And this happens over and over and over again until finally the Levite says, that's enough. It's time for us to go. We're going. So the Levite, concubine, male servant, couple donkeys, leave Bethlehem, traveling north, back to Ephraim to try and make this relationship work. Well, they leave. They leave later in the day. The sun begins to set, and they end up at the gates of a town called Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And the father-in-law was right. They left too late in the day. And they're just passing through, looking for a place to stay for the night. So they go to the town square. This is, this is the way things worked back in that day, especially if, if you're an Israelite. The law of hospitality required. If a stranger shows up and the stranger is in the town square at night, you go introduce yourself, you figure out where they're from, you figure out why they're traveling through, and then you invite them into your house at night. So they have a place to stay. There's no hotels, Right? No motels. So it was their custom. You could even kind of make the case that the law of Moses required this. But either way, everybody knew it. And everybody followed it for the most part. Except this time. Nobody shows up in the town square. Nobody introduces themselves. Nobody invites them to come and stay the night. In fact, they kind of ignore them. And the sun sets, they're still waiting in the town square. And as the night goes on, a man who's living in Gibeah, which we actually find out he's from Ephraim, he comes in from working out in the fields at night. He sees these people in the town square. He goes and introduces himself. What are you here for? Where are you going? All this stuff. And he invites them to come to his house and stay the night that night. So you got the Levite, the concubine, the male servant, two donkeys, the guy from Gibeah, all in the same house. Any questions so far? All on the same page, okay? This is where the story goes off the rails. Judges 19, it's late in the evening. They finish eating and drinking, and we're told that the house is surrounded by wicked men. And they start banging on the door, and they say to the man living there, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can, you can read the rest, right? 
Now, this wasn't so much about, um, about gratification as it was about humiliation. This was another Canaanite practice adopted by some of the Israelites. Canaanite men would do this to their enemies. It was adopted by Greek culture. We actually have records from the first century in Rome where Romans would do this to their enemies, not for gratification, for humiliation. So they're pounding on the door. We don't like strangers. Nobody invited them. Bring them out here. We're going to show them that we don't like strangers in our town. And when they leave here, they're going to go tell everybody, don't go to Gibeah. Verse 23. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. He's following the law of hospitality. He's kind of the hero at this point. Stay away. They're under my roof. They're under my protection. I'm obeying this law. Go away. If only only the story could end there. He goes on. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But the men would not listen. So the man, the Levite, took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And I didn't even want to put up the rest of the verse. It's just horrible. It's horrible. This is where the nation of Israel had gotten. This is where they were. And the next morning, the Levite wakes up, goes outside, and there on the ground lays his concubine dead. And he loads her up, Puts it on the donkey, puts the body on the donkey, his male servant, his donkeys leave town, they make their way back to Ephraim. And he is angry. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. The law of hospitality is violated. His concubine was murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. He almost lost his own life. And he decides to do something about it. He writes a letter to all 12 tribes in Israel, essentially to the people who were the leaders of each tribe, telling them what had happened. And he, hire, he hires these servants to go and send or take this letter. And he thinks to himself, wait a minute. Nobody's going to do anything because of a letter. They don't even know who I am. And so he comes up with a little bit more of an idea. He takes his concubine and he basically chops her into 12 different pieces. He wraps the body parts up and attaches them to the letter that he is sending to the 12 tribes of Israel. A few days later, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel get some not-so-fun mail. They read the letter, and, and, and they're outraged. There's this collective sense of, wow, this is where we're at? Wow, we, we have sunk to an all-time low. This is rock bottom for us. I mean, there's been things in different tribes that have been issues. There's been things in between tribes that have been issues. There's been things with the Philistines and the Canaanites, but... This is rock bottom for us. And they gather together. Here's what we're told. Everyone who saw it or everyone who heard the story was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the days the Israelites came up out of Egypt. They're going way back. Like we've we've reached a brand new low. Just imagine we must do something so speak up. And they, they collectively decide they're going to put an army together. They're going to show up outside the gates of Gibeah and demand that justice be done. 
Here's what happened. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's basically from north to south, and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. And, and every city, every tribe sent their representative. They sent armed representatives. And they, they basically make an oath with each other. And the oath is, no matter what happens, from now on, we will never allow our daughters to be given in marriage to any Benjamite ever again. We're not doing it. And then they march to the gates of Gibeah and demand that the Benjamites hand over those wicked men, hand over the perpetrators of the crime. Problem is, a body part and a letter was sent to the leaders of the Benjamites. So they had a little bit of an idea of what had happened. They had a little bit of an idea of what was coming, and they were ready for them when they showed up. They refused to hand over the wicked men. They basically say there's been no trial, even if they did what you said you did. We will judge our own by our own laws. And they're on the verge of armed conflict, and that's exactly what happens. The 11 tribes and their army attacks the city of Gibeah and the Benjamite army on the first day of the battle. The Benjamite army repels the other army. Tens of thousands of men are killed. The first day, second day, the same thing happens. The Benjamite army repels the army of the 11 other tribes. Tens of thousands of men killed. On the third day, the, the, the Israelite army comes up with a strategy where they fake retreat, and the Benjamite army follows them from the city, and then another part of their army kind of flanks them. They're hiding. They ambush Gibeah, and they set it on fire. And the Benjamite army looks back and they see their, their city is on fire and they panic. They, they run home, the battle turns, and at this point, the bloodlust of the 11 tribes is out of control. They kill every man, woman, child, animal that, he was, that was breathing in Gibeah, burn it to the ground, and then they go city by city by city by city in the entire tribe of Benjamin, killing every man, woman, child, animal, burning it to the ground until the whole tribe of Benjamin is a smoldering, smelly wasteland. Everything's dead. Except for 600 men who had escaped into the desert from the tribe of Benjamin. For four months, they hide out in the wilderness, scared to death. And you could, I don't even know if we can imagine this, but after the emotion died down, after the, the adrenaline goes away, the bloodlust diminishes, it dawns on the leaders of the 11 other tribes, we just wiped out an entire tribe of our own people. There are no longer 12 tribes. There's 11 tribes. And they actually start to repent of their genocide. And then somebody raises their hand. <laughs> and you can almost, it's like, actually, there's 600 more Benjamites that have been hiding out in the wilderness. Maybe, maybe we can coax them out to come back. And someone else raises their hand. Yeah, but they're all male. 
They won't have any wives. Remember, we made an oath, no matter what happens. We're not giving our daughters in marriage to any Benjamite. What are we supposed to do about that? And somebody else raises their hand, comes up with an idea. Well, were any of the cities non-committal to the battle? Were there any cities that didn't send representatives to join us in our fight against the tribe of Benjamin? And someone says, yeah, I don't think there's anybody here from Jabesh Gilead. And they ask, is there anybody here from Jabesh Gilead? That's what they hear. There was no representative from Jabesh Gilead. So the 11 tribes put together a small army, sent them to Jabesh Gilead with these instructions. Kill every man, woman, animal, burn the city, bring all the young girls back, kidnap them, bring them back, and we'll give those women to the men who are coming in from the desert as wives so we don't completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin. That's exactly what they do. They raise the whole city, kidnap the young girls, bring them back, coax the 600 remaining Benjamites out of the desert. It's like, we're sorry. Good news, bad news. Bad news is we burned your cities to the ground and killed all of your families. Good news is we got about 500 young girls who we think maybe will be your wife. But bad news there's 600 of you, there's only 500 of them. So we're going to come up with another idea to go kidnap 100 other girls from this festival that's going to happen, and then all of you will have a wife. And that's how the book of Judges ends. You should read your Bible. I'm just telling you, right? Like, don't read this to your kids at night before they go to bed. It's like, Dad, tell us the story about the concubine and the chainsaw. I want to hear that one again. But it, it's... This is what happens in a country, in a nation, amongst a group of people. And, and, and as the author of Judges ends this unbelievable story, he makes a comment. It's almost haunting when you think about the context of, of what we just read, what we just heard. Here's the final verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. And because there was no king, there was no final authority no one to impose God's law on the nation as a whole. In those days, Israel had no king, so everyone did as they saw fit. Maybe your translation says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. There was no sense of, no, that's right and that's wrong. And so everybody just followed their own moral compass. That's, that's just everybody just did as they saw fit. It's exactly what happened 21 years ago today. A group of men decided this is what's right. It's in our eyes. This is what we believe is the right thing to do. So they board planes and they fly them into a bunch of buildings. That's the recipe for moral mayhem. You, there's no binding moral consensus. Everybody just follows their own moral compass. You just, just go back to the story. Go read it. Go read the story from, from Judges 19 all the way through the end. And every single character, every single group, every single person in that story just does what they saw fit. And, and 
in isolated moments, you can say, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense why they would do that. But you put all of those isolated events together, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. And here's the thing. Here's why we're talking about this. There's some of that in you. There's some of that in me. There's something in me from time to time that I just want to go, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) This is my life. And I can do whatever I want and don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Because I think it's right. I'm going to do as I see fit. You manage your own behavior, I'll manage mine. But this is right for me, whether you think it's right for me or not. In fact, you know where that comes from? It's, it's kind of the, the underbelly. It's the unspoken part of the American dream. We want the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. Like That's the, that's the, 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 the ability to be so autonomous and free from other people that I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and nobody else can tell me what to do. And we live in a culture, we're not the only culture, but we live in a culture where every single day in some form, in some fashion, for advertising, and if you're an advertiser, I don't have anything against you. I love your product. I just don't always want to buy it, but you're fine, okay? Media, social media influencers, TV, movies, music, some way, every single day, there's this message that just reaches into our heart. It reaches into our minds. It reaches into our conscience. It especially reaches into our emotions and just stirs the pot. No, you're your own person. Nobody can tell you what to do. Just do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. But because we're civilized, we add this addendum. As long as it doesn't, what? Yeah, you've heard it before. You've thought it before. I can do whatever I want, when I want, with whoever I want, as long as I don't hurt anybody. And it sounds great on the service, but there, there, are, there are a few problems with this. And, and we're, just, we're just wading in a little bit to this today. Okay, we're going to get to more as we go through this. But, but let's just get our feet wet today on this idea, okay? First of all, only the super rich can actually afford to live like this. You ever thought about this? After a while, if you live in such a way, especially in the United States, and do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want, you need an army of attorneys. You do. And only the super rich can afford this. It's interesting to me. The people who preach this message are the super rich. Social media influencers people who write the music, people who produce the movies, whatever it is. It's, it, and and it's, there's something in us that stirs us. Yeah, that's me. Born to be wild, right? And we watch the characters. Oh, to be like him. Oh, to be like her. Oh, to have that power. Or oh, to have that freedom. There's something, it just reaches into us and and we buy the music. We keep going to see the movies. We keep spending our money on it. So who can blame them for making it? Who can blame them for producing it? But in the real world, 
with all of us non-super rich people, you never find people preaching this message. You never hear a fifth grade teacher on Friday afternoon get all the pupils together, get all the students together and say, boys and girls, let me just remind you that the key to your happiness is doing whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. And don't let anybody else tell you any differently. See you Monday. Right? Talk about a terror of a weekend for parents. You, you will never hear a social worker sit down with parents and say, we're going to have to take your kids away from you, but just keep doing whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, and we'll eventually give your kids back. As soon as you master autonomy, you get your kids back. You don't hear this from parole officers. You don't hear this from judges because they're on the negative side of the consequences and they know better. They know better. It's a message only for the super rich. The second reason this doesn't work is because generally speaking, it only works out for men, not women. In a culture where men do what they want, when they want, with whoever they want, women lose every single time. Every time. So it usually only works out for men than it does for women. The third reason this doesn't work is because that thing we want to tack on the end, it doesn't work as long as I don't hurt anybody. You can't do as you see fit without eventually hurting someone. It's impossible because eventually you hurt you. And you might want to write this down. You are someone. You will eventually hurt you. Come on, think about this. The thing that you wish you could go back and undo or unsee, that habit, that addiction, that relationship you wish you could get out of, that relationship your husband doesn't know about, that relationship your wife doesn't know about, that you want to get rid of, you want to get out of, that thing that's mastered you, do you realize that thing started as an expression of your freedom? It started as, I'm going to do what I want. And no, nobody can tell me what to do. And now you can't do what you want when you want with whomever you want because that thing that's mastered you, that started as, a, as, as an expression of your misguided freedom. That's where it started. But, but it doesn't stop there. Come on. We know this. We don't just hurt us. We hurt the people next to us. We hurt the people that love us. Teenagers, you can't hurt you without hurting your parents. It's impossible. Husbands, wives, you can't hurt you without hurting your spouse. If your parents are still alive, you can't hurt you without hurting your parents. That's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. As long as I don't hurt anybody is a myth. It doesn't work. It never works. And here's, here's the thing for those of you who are followers of Jesus. Why would you aspire to that? Like, is that the goal? <laughs> like, I've read the New Testament hundreds of times. I don't find that anywhere. That's like the bottom of the barrel. 
Why would I aspire? Like you're following somebody, but you're not following Jesus if that's what you aspire to. Why, why, why would we go there? How come we never hear, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, as long as it helps somebody? Why don't you hear that? I mean, isn't that closer to what Scripture teaches? Isn't that closer to what Jesus teaches? Why, why wouldn't we decide to help as much as we can instead of trying to get away with as much bad as we can? What is that? What is that in me? Ah, somebody please give me an answer to this. What is that? So, fasten your seatbelts and place your tray tables at an upright position because we're going to land this thing really quick, okay? My Bible, my Bible teaches, Jesus teaches that we are to approach God as a heavenly father. You, you, you heard Jake read it earlier, right? And as a good heavenly father, any good thing, including any good law, any good wisdom uh, into how to make life work the best it possibly, any good insight into morality. My theology tells me that ultimately comes from God. So here's the question. Here's where we're going to go throughout the series. If you were God, how would you respond to a group of people who decided, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, and nobody can tell me what to do? How would you respond to them? If you, if you knew that every man for himself eventually isolates himself, what would you say? If you created humanity, if you knew them inside and out, you knew them better than they know themselves, how would you respond? If God is a good father who loves his children, how would you expect him to respond to you, to me, to us, to, to an entire nation, to a culture that seems to increasingly lean in the direction of, I've got my own moral compass. I don't need yours. And, and, and here's the other thing. We saw the death of a queen this week. In 105 days from today, our nation, at least most of the people in, in our country, will, t will hit the pause button and celebrate the birth of a king. 105 days from right now is Christmas. And everybody, almost everybody in America is going to stop because, well, partly because they get off of work, but also because of the star and Bethlehem and Silent Night and, oh, the warm fuzzies and all that stuff. There's going to be a brief pause in our chaotic lives, and we'll celebrate the birth of a king, even though we live in a nation that's quick to say we have no king. We want no king. Nobody tells us what to do. We don't want anybody else getting up in our business. So think about this. The celebration of the birth of a king in a nation that is more intent than ever on doing what they want, when they want, with whoever they want. How strange. <laughs> How odd. But that's what you get. That's what you get when people decide there is no moral consensus, so I'm going to follow my own moral compass. 
And that is where we will pick up next week in part two.